a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 120 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to people working in or around the industry from all over the country and beyond. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast on your favorite social media platform. Has anybody noticed that we're still in a global pandemic and sports are shut down? Anyone? It really has been a really difficult time for many people in our business and beyond that for all intents and purposes, and I'm no exception. I've just felt really down about a lot of things in life. When will sports come back? When can I start building my business again? When can I go back to being a sportscaster and not a Home Depot paint mixer. A lot of questions with no clear answers, and it just becomes frustrating as this continues to drag on. However, the last couple of weeks, I've really tried to change my focus and really zero in on the positives. So before I dive headfirst into today's conversation, I wanted to just tell you three good things going on in my life-slash-career right now. First... Uh, I have been able to expand my business a little bit. I've added a second high school to my streaming platform, and I've hired a broadcaster that I'm really happy with to call their games, and I've started reaching out to sponsors trying to get the, the business up and going. And of course, there's been some challenges, but there's been some very positive reactions as well to the point where am I going to succeed the way that I think I will in the future? No just because it's been such a hard year on small local businesses, but I do think it will be profitable in year one, despite some of the uh, troubling times, as long as we do end up having fall sports. If that is canceled for whatever reason, obviously that would change things. But for the moment, things are moving forward. There's been some positive signs, and, and I'm in a good place there. Second, since January, so even before the pandemic, I have lost 40 pounds. It got to a point at the end of last year where I was seeing numbers on the scale that looked awfully foreign, and I re-examined the lifestyle I was leading and just decided that this has to change or bad things are going to happen in my future health-wise. So I'm not doing any crazy crash diets or super intense exercise programs, just eating less horrible. I don't even want to say good, but uh, less horrible, getting some moderate exercise when I can, enjoying the outdoors here in Minnesota, here in the spring and summer where applicable. And it's gotten results over a little over six months, 40 pounds. And certainly the gains have started to slow down, but I continue to see that number on the scale go down in a pattern that uh, is encouraging. Last, I mentioned a little about this in the previous little tidbit. Late spring and early summer in Minnesota are just fantastic. The weather is beautiful. Uh, all the lakes and outdoor stuff to do. The temperatures are so much milder even than uh, what they were in Iowa and Nebraska where I grew up and spent a lot of my college and early years of my career. It's so much more humid down there than it is up here. And obviously we get paid back in the winter, but right now I'm just appreciating how great it is outside. But anyway, this week's episode is with Steve Hers, a sports media agent and president of IF Management, which is now part of the Montag Group. He just published a book called Don't Take Yes for an Answer. And if you find this conversation interesting and want to learn more about Steve's philosophies on self-improvement and buy the book, 
Uh, just visit stevenherz.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-H-E-R-Z.com. So without further ado, Steve Herz, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Logan. I've been uh, listening to your work for a long time, and I think you do great stuff, so I'm happy to be here. So if you've listened for a long time, you know I've had a couple people on here who have come out with books before, and uh, usually when somebody has a book, I want to talk more about their career and everything around it and not as much about the book. But in this case, after reading your book, I thought the way that you attacked your book called Don't Take Yes for an Answer is really interesting because it's a topic that I've really looked into, self-improving through self-awareness. And I just thought it was a really interesting way of handling the book, and I wanted to let you know that before we really got into the nitty-gritty. I really appreciate it. I obviously spent, you know, in some respects, almost 30 years writing the book, and certainly over the last four years, really working on it. So it's something that has been developed evolutionary over a long period of time. And right away in the first chapter, or maybe it's the introduction, I don't remember the exact spot, but you were told by a professor at Vanderbilt named Turner Smith, if I my notes are correct. Now he, he, he was actually a lawyer in a, in a okay. private law firm that I worked at. But he told um, you you're a horrible was, associate yeah. and you should quit. And I've never – I've had some pretty harsh criticism. I've had some figure it out type of moments, but – what was your reaction in that moment? Someone tells you you're horrible at the thing that you've put all your effort into for several years and that you need to quit. It's not for you. What was your reaction there and why did you take the path you did? I would say that what happened was, was that I suspected what he had told me. He told me that I, he didn't think I should become a lawyer and finish law school and stay with, the, with that field. And I think deep down, I knew that he was right. It was very painful, obviously, after having dedicated two years of my life to, to law and, and, you know, car getting everything in that direction. But I, I just kind of had a sense that it really wasn't what I could be great at in this world. And I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. You know, sometimes you go down a path for, in my case, my dad was a lawyer, my two older brothers, lawyers, cousins, uncles. That was sort of the family business. But also then you start telling people, well, I'm going to law school and it becomes part of your identity. And people hate to change their identity because it becomes such a part of who they are. And there's a sense of loss, even though you don't really think about why you're doing what you're doing. I start there because I had a similar experience, maybe not quite as uh, severe, where I had a preconceived notion about where I was in my talent as a sports broadcaster. And through a critique three or four years into my career, where I just got shredded to bits by, it was actually John Chelesnick of STAA. And at first I was kind of mad and thought that he was wrong because all of the feedback I had ever gotten from other people throughout my career had said, oh, you're so good. And then once I took a little time to actually listen to what he said and figure out, you know, I can either take what he said and go with it and actually get better or be where I'm at and unhappy I thought that was an interesting sort of parallel that we went through uh, of developing that self-awareness because I feel like there's a lot of people in this business, particularly the sportscasting industry, that does not have it. I, I would agree. I would agree. I, I think it's uh, I think it's something in, in many industries that people don't have it. And then the, you know it becomes a question. There's there's a twofold question here inside your premise, which is one: if you're told that you're not really good at something, I mean, I was. I was actually told I, I really shouldn't do it, I, but I don't think everybody gets that harsh of a, of a feedback. But let's say it's not that harsh, but someone says you're just not that good at it and you need to improve upon it. Then the question is you have to ask yourself, can I really get good enough at this particular thing that I'm doing to really reach the level of potential that I will be happy at? You know, if, if, if you could become uh, a sportscaster and, and max out as the voice of of, you know, Butler basketball and live in Indianapolis and make $75,000 a year, and, and you're going to be really happy with that in your life, then that's great. Then you should do that. And But if you're the type of person that is only going to be happy if you're working at ESPN or in a major job and you don't really would ever find the satisfaction of being the voice of Butler basketball, then it's not the right thing for you. And you have to really sort of think about 
am I really capable of getting to that level where I want to be? And is there something else I could do with my life where I have a stronger skill set and uh, an ability to go higher? And, and if, that, if, if that's your goal, I mean, listen, it, everybody's different. And I'm not writing this book to tell you or anybody how to live their life. I'm just saying that I've observed over the last 30 years that when expectations are not met by reality and someone's abilities don't necessarily – or you can make a pretty good prediction. of, And, and look, no prediction is – is, is, is foolproof. But if you can make a pretty good prediction about someone's ultimate uh, landing spot in life, then, then, then that's how you have to make this judgment call. And I think you should make it earlier rather than later. Because, you know, the last thing you want to be is 40 years old and on that path, not even at Butler yet. And you're saying, oh my God, where's my life gone? You actually refer to it in the book as finding the spinach in your teeth. And how do you find the people that aren't just going to tell you what you want to hear, who will tell you what your flaws are. Because as you you talk about in your book, there's a lot of people who don't want to offend you. They want to be your friends. How do you find the people in your life to be brutally honest? Well, they're not that hard to find if you demand it of others. We all could find – I mean I'm lucky in the sense that I have people that rip me all day long in, in every respect colleagues, friends, and, and my family, because they know that's what I want. And I put myself purposely under this microscope, but I think it helps me improve. And so I think if you create that, your own culture in your own life, and you, you know, you have this in John Chalesnik. So if you, first of all, maybe rely more on him because he has already proven that for you, but also if you demand it of other people, look, you have to – you don't want to get feedback from everybody and you don't want to get feedback from people that don't necessarily understand the specific nature of the kind of feedback you're looking for. You can get opinions on everything, on every subject from everybody in your life, but you want to find people that know the field, also are understanding of what's going to resonate with you. I'm not suggesting that you surround yourself with people that rip you to shreds. That's not constructive either. And each person, again, is different. But I think you should try to find people and demand people in your life who are going to give you constructive feedback. So find people you respect. Find people that care about you, that even if they're going to say something to you that's you know, perceived as negative, it's going to be done with what I call tough love. Like They care about Logan Anderson, and they want you to succeed. And they're only telling you this, and you know they're only telling you this because they truly care about you. And that's a huge part of it. The difficult part is always finding out how to filter what's real and what's just uh, people trying to make you feel good. But And I think I've got a pretty good handle on that at this point, but it's definitely something that took some time. Uh, what suggestions would you make to a young broadcaster who might be able to figure that early, figure that out earlier? Well, you know, don't believe the hype, first of all. Uh, you know, tr try to ask people – what's one thing I could do better? What are a couple things? And then figure out what the big things are. You know, and I try to talk about this in the book. I think voice is very important, especially for a broadcaster. Uh, everybody in life, I think your voice is important. But again, especially for a broadcaster. And I think the ability to have range and to use your voice properly is important. I see a lot of young broadcasters out there who get outside of their vocal range. When the big play happens, they don't have the ability to get excited without getting squeaky. And it's it, that compromises their authority. And so I think that, you, you know, to, to the point of your question, the other thing that is very important is try to differentiate between what I call the objective qualities and the subjective qualities. So if somebody doesn't like people who have blonde hair, that's a subjective analysis. But what you want to do is get the improvement on objective things, a good voice, good body language, lack of filler words, speaking with authority, having good eye contact. You know, these are things that objectively everybody's going to feel the same way about. So it's not so subjective. And if you can differentiate between that and improve the objective quality, then I think you'll improve and you'll move ahead in the world. So improving is going to be a big part of succeeding in any business, broadcasting including. But what you do, what your talent is, what you do with that is not the whole puzzle. And you have a, an acronym 
that you use called awe, authority, warmth, and energy. And it really kind of explains the way that people get ahead, not necessarily that don't have the talent, but over equally talented people. And let's just start. Where did you come up with that philosophy? I mean, I think it was, again, it was evolutionary. I, I started as a talent agent back in the early 90s and eventually worked my way into a uh, business relationship with a guy named Alfred Geller. It's in the book. And he was a real devotee of communication. He was obsessed with it. And he had reams and reams of uh, an entire library of tapes uh, back in the day with three-quarter inch tapes and beta tapes and these giant you know, this giant, all these giant tapes and he would characterize them in terms of vocal resonance, vocal pitch and authority, energy. He didn't call it authority, but he talked about strength. And, you know, through him, I started to really get fascinated by this subject. And I started to take classes at NYU. I took voice classes myself and wanted to learn if I was going to coach and represent broadcasters. I thought it was important for me to understand all these aspects of communication I actually took a class at uh, on improv training so I could learn how to listen better. I, I took an acting class. I took a stand-up comedy class. I took a writing class. And, you, you know, I, I did all these things not because I wanted to be talent. I, I've never been talent and don't have any desire to be talent. But I wanted to understand what talent went through and how I could really deconstruct the process. And then I think awe came out of that because I understood all the – little details of it and all the granularity to it. And I think, you know, all is just, it's a shorthand. It's, I'm not inventing anything new here other than an acronym, but it's just, you know, at the end of the day, what matters in communication, whether you're on air, off air, whoever you are, is to have influence. You want to have influence to get promoted for a job. You want to have influence to have say in the room. So your colleagues will listen to you. You want to have influence to get a broadcasting job. It's, it's all about communication influence and the way to get influence influence, in my view at least, is to get people to trust you, to like you, to go along with your ideas, to see you as a competent person, and to be energized by you. And that's what awe is. It's authority, warmth, energy. Everything I just said, this is a shorthand for that. I want to unpack each of those aspects a little bit. And you've touched on authority and uh, the part about it that as a broadcaster is the most interesting, which you alluded to, is the voice. How do you develop an authoritative voice if you don't have time to go to classes and those resources, or if you live in the middle of nowhere in rural America? How do you develop that voice? Well, I think, first of all, you, you, you should have time. If you want to be a broadcaster and you don't have time to take some classes on voice, then you're probably not in the right field if you can't dedicate some time to it. And, and look, for the, for the very rare exception person who's that busy 24-7 that they can't take the time, there's probably some online classes you could take. And if you can't do that, then there's a book I recommend in my book called Change Your Voice, Change Your Life by Dr. Mort Cooper where you can learn some great vocal exercises. And you know, a guy that you interviewed for your podcast several months ago that's been a client of mine for over 25 years, Brian Anderson, I recommended that book to him all the way back – you know, 1995, I think it was. And he's read it and done those exercises, I think, every day since then. So, you know, if you can't dedicate that time to your craft, it's like telling someone who's going to play in the Philharmonic, well, I don't have time to practice the piano. No. Well, then you don't belong in the Philharmonic. This is part of your job as a broadcaster to have a great voice or, or as good a voice as you can have. I actually have that book sitting next to me on my computer right now. I've been going through it during the quarantine. but um, Good, good. Dr. Mort Cooper should be paying me royalties. I probably sold a thousand books for that guy. Well, you're, he's, you're, he's, he's, he's amazing. Your irrelevant fact of the day is that I tried to look up how to get a hold of him and have him talk about voice on this show, but he is very retired and <laughs> not doing things yeah, like yeah. that anymore. But. The other part of authority that I thought was particularly interesting is kind of dress and physical appearance because different. there's no one way to do that. It has to kind of fit you. For example, you hate ties and you don't wear them. How do you learn that part of your authority and what makes you – what kind of look makes you authoritative? 
Well, look, I, I think authority is different for everybody. And, and, and you have to kind of find this balance between your own sense of comfort and your own sense of style and your authority. And, you know, look, somebody like Steve Jobs could have authority wearing a black turtleneck. And other people could wear a suit and tie and look so awkward in it that they don't have any authority in it. So it's not a, no pun intended, a one-size-fits-all approach. But I do think that from the perspective of authority, if you carry I, – I was coaching a, a team of bankers last week. It's part of the work I'm doing now. And somebody asked a similar question, and I said – I used a sports metaphor. I talked about Barry Sanders and how he would always just hand the ball to the referee when he got to the end zone. And his line was, you got to act like you've been there before. And I think that that's – if you can internalize that sense of authority about yourself, that you've been here before, you belong here. And to me, that's more important than what you're wearing. And the other part is you – know, you didn't ask about this, but I, I do think it's a very important point and a problem that a lot of people have, including me sometimes, which is sometimes – people lose their authority because they use too many filler words you know like so eh ums and they don't get to the point with conviction because they're using so many filler words that it really compromises their authority the second part of awe is the warmth part and in my there's the crutch words that you were just talking about but I find it to be my personal weakness, the one that I feel like I need to work on the most, is developing that warmth. Uh, and you say talking versus connecting. And I feel like I'm a good talker, but connecting is not something that really comes naturally. Uh, what are the keys and the suggestions you would make to someone to be better at connecting versus just talking? All right, well... I think you are a good example of this. If you don't mind, I'll give you a bit of coaching. Would you, would you be offended? Sure, go for it. Something? So I think you're a good example. You're a guy who does really well in terms of talking, and you have some really good strengths there. But I think your your voice and your pitch level, it's it's very consistent. Like There's not a lot of range in how you speak. And so I think that can compromise one's warmth. Because if you don't have emotion in your voice and you don't lower your pitch and you don't whisper a little bit and change your volume, then you can come across – and not just you, but I'm saying a person can come across too robotic. And I also think that irrespective of how good you are on air – and my book is not really dedicated primarily to on-air people as you know because you read it. But even for on-air people like you, a lot of your success or lack thereof will come from how people perceive you off-air. And I think a lot of broadcasters don't realize that. And so people are really colored by the time they pop in, or they don't pop in the tape anymore, but by the time they, you know, click on the link and watch you, they've already formed some kind of an opinion of you. And it's kind of like going to a restaurant. If, if you, you know, the meal comes out and it smells good and it, the plate looks good, you, you're, you're going to like the food more. You, you have like your senses, your, your senses are, are heightened and, you have an expectation of something that's going to be good. And I think it's the same with broadcasting. I'm going to have you keep the coaching hat on here a little bit. So what do you do? What type of drills or what type of vocal tics or in conversation do you focus on to change that? I mean, let's, let's practice right now. So ask me that question again. What kind of vocal drills, what kind of habits do you practice to change that? But now I want you to really vary your volume. So I'll say, say, you know, you don't have to do exactly like this, but say it a little bit more like this. So Steve, tell me what, what kind of vocal drills, long pause, what, what, what kind of things could I do more emotion, Logan, just practice it, practice the things we talk about in the book, practice varying your volume, practice varying your pitch, practice being more emotional, practice being, having inflection, lay out a little bit, if you, you got to vary it. So, I mean, if you don't mind, do it right now, and I think you'll see a tremendous difference. Steve, for this next question, I do think I want to ask you, what can I personally do, what type of drills, and how do I develop those habits? See? See how different that was? Not until I listen back, it? but... <laughs> okay, well, you'll see. And, and, and so when you go listen back to that, I think you can 
take it even another level and, and you'll start to get comfortable with those concepts. And then listen, this is a beautiful thing about what I think the awe concept can offer you is you don't need to practice this just when you're on the air. You could practice this at home, practice it with your friends, practice it talking into a microphone. It's, it, it, it gives you the opportunity to let the entire, your, your entire life basically be batting practice for you. Since reading your book, you probably don't know this, but during this pandemic, uh, in order to make money, I've been working shifts at uh, Home Depot a few blocks from my house. And one of the things I've been doing is uh, it's a different part of the warmth area that we haven't discussed yet, but trying to pick up things about them and connect to them more personally because you have another part that talks about making crutch phrases or saying the same greeting every day. And I am a hundred, 100% guilty of doing that and having them lose their effectiveness. Okay. And I just, I want you to expand a little bit on that. I probably should have phrased that question differently, but connecting people and avoiding having them get stale to your introductions and to your conversations because you're repeating them. How important is that? I mean, I think it's very important. I, I, I think that, you know, one of the key tenets of awe is the whole idea of warmth and underneath warmth is a sense of trust. And I think underneath trust is a sense of connection. And the way that you can connect with people is to try to meet them halfway or on their terms. So one of the things I talk about in the book is if you meet someone from, you know, at Home Depot and they're wearing a shirt that says, you know, University of Kansas on it, maybe you just say Rock Chalk Jayhawk or whatever and, you know, put them at ease and show them that you know who the Kansas Jayhawks are and and, 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 and they'll, they'll feel a sense of connection to you or anything about them. You just ask them a question about where they're from or what they like to do and try to find some commonality with them. People really appreciate that. You know, just yesterday I, I did another podcast called the learning leadership podcast with a guy named Ryan Hawk. And before we did the podcast, I did some research on him and I found out that he played football at Ohio university in Athens, Ohio. And before the call, I mentioned to him that my mom and dad actually had met at Ohio university in 1956 and immediately his guard was down. He's like, wow, that's so cool. I can't believe it. You know, and you know, here's a New York guy, me, whose parents met in Athens, Ohio. He thought that was pretty cool. And it just, it just took the conversation into a much more uh, warmer, friendlier tone. And, you know, later on, I referenced that he had played for the Birmingham Steel Dogs in the AFL too. And I think he was very, you know, charmed by the fact that I took the time to learn that kind of thing about him. And it opened him up to trust me and to open up more to me. Even though he was interviewing me, it, it, it just really created a lot of room within the relationship. And, I, and I've seen that happen for, for myself hundreds and hundreds of times. I talk about it in the book, and I've seen it happen for other people. People want to connect with you. They, they do. And if you just give them that space to do that and you tell them in however you do, hey, look, I care about you, even if it's something silly as, as – I learned about where you went to college and just sharing this commonality in a small way. It says, I care about you. I cared enough to learn a little bit about you. And, and people really respond to that. One of the, just as you have, go ahead. No, I'm saying just as you have, you know, like I, I, I care about you. I, I, before this podcast, I took the time to listen to, and I have in the past, but three or four of your podcasts and read three articles that you wrote. You know, I, I just think that's what we should behave that way anyway. And even if it didn't do any good for you, you know, my book is not teaching you how to manipulate people. I, I hope that nobody takes it in that way. It's just the way I think it's also a decent way to live. In addition, Steve, to that, in a lot of situations where you want to connect with someone, I'm going to use the example of when I go to North Carolina to the National uh, Sportscasters Association. I don't remember what they call themselves, the NSMA, the Sports Media Association. And you want to make connections there with people who, for lack of a better word, you want to – they're the givers and you would be the taker in the relationship as far as any help or um, value to the relationship. It would be more to you than to the other person. Is there 
Is there any difference in that situation? I mean, for me, no, it's not. I I think if you can demonstrate, uh, you know, a sense of value to another person, then try to demonstrate it. And I also think you should try not to be so overt about your networking. I'm not a big believer in that, that you should be, quote unquote, networking. I I think that if you live your life in a way that you, you try to just meet people and connect with them, and you know, offer something, whatever it might be, even a small token of friendship towards them, and take an interest in them, and and don't have an agenda. So let's say, for example, you uh, go to that NSMA and you meet, I don't know, some executive at ESPN. I, I don't know. I would just more suggest just trying to get to know them and almost more ask questions. Say, you know, what 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 are your challenges right now what what are what are things that you know problems that you you need solved whatever it might be and you know if if you could try to understand maybe you have a solution to someone's problem maybe espn's problem is that they have no lacrosse broadcasters in the midwest and even though you don't really want to be a lacrosse broadcaster you certainly would do that and 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 that would get you an in you know i'm just giving you just an example and so if if you then follow up with that guy in two months and maybe you, you show him or her that uh, that you've learned a ton about lacrosse and maybe you send a lacrosse article or whatever, maybe you write a lacrosse article, then now you're a possible, now you may have some value to him. But the only way you would ever know if you had any value is if you actually asked questions to find out what's important to him. But if you just come into the relationship about me, 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 and what's in it for me, First of all, you're never going to solve anyone else's problem because you don't even know what their problem is. At the end of the day, all of us exist to solve other people's problems. And I don't say that in a negative way, but I think that we have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, our jobs, we none of us would have jobs if we're not providing a solution to someone else's problem. I mean, ESPN's problem is they need someone to call a game and you are a potential solution for that. My the problem someone else might have is they don't know about an opportunity and they need an agent. I'm a solution to that. They may not know how to negotiate as well as I could. But if I can't solve someone else's problem, I'm worthless. And again, I don't mean that to be harsh. That's nope. just that's just reality. No, that makes sense. And one of the the things that I think that you talked about in your book that another thing that I'm personally going to be working on improving on is you talk to everyone. You just will talk to someone on an elevator. You got one of your biggest clients, Dan Shulman, by talking to somebody at a golf event before a wedding and just being interested in people's stories. Just tell us that story, a little bit of that particular example of how you ended up uh, meeting one of Dan Shulman's friends at a wedding and turning that into a valuable relationship. So it was 1994. I was in Dallas, Texas for the wedding of a friend of mine named Murray Davis, who I'm still friendly with. Spoke to him this morning. He he lives in Columbus, Ohio, but he was marrying a girl from, from, from Texas. And the day before the wedding, I went down there early. There was a golf outing of sorts for the, for the out-of-town guests. And I got paired up with a guy named Michael Bronstein, who – was a, a guy who lived in Toronto. It turned out he was a cousin of the bride and we played golf for four hours and just had a great talk and learned about him and he learned about me and that was it. I didn't have any expectations. I wasn't selling him anything. And, you know, at the very end he said, I, I, I like, you know, something like I like your attitude or whatever. And I have a neighbor, a guy who lives around the corner from me. I think he's going to be a really big star in broadcasting. I think he's going to be the next Al Michaels or Bob Costas. I forgot exactly what he said. And he said his name is Dan Schulman, and he just became the voice of the Toronto Blue Jays. And I said, great, thank you. He said, you should give this guy a call and you can use my name. And I went back to New York. This is before I even had my own business. And I called Dan and we ended up meeting for lunch when he came to town at Mickey Mantle's restaurant in New York City, which is now closed. And we developed a friendship, no business. And a few months later, 
I, I remember, I think it was Steve Anderson, who was then an executive at ESPN, said that they were looking for some new college basketball play-by-play voices uh, for this new network, ESPN2. And I said, I know this guy in Toronto. I think he's great. He wasn't even a client at the time, but I think he's amazing. And I asked Dan to send me some a reel. He did. I think we edited something. And I got it into the hands of Steve Anderson. And Dan Shulman got a job working, I think it was a game, American University versus George Washington, something of that nature. And I, I didn't commission him. There was, there was nothing else. And I, I guess it was like a year or two later, he, he called me up and he said, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm being offered a, a full-time job at ESPN and I want you to be my agent. I want you to negotiate the deal for me and, and help me. And he remembered the goodwill that I guess I had extended towards him. And we've had an incredibly close 25-year relationship now. He's been a client since then and one of my closest friends. And it all started with this, you know, just talking to some stranger. What are other stories? With no, ag- with no agenda, by the way. No agenda. That I think that's important. You can't have an agenda in, in this world because people could smell it on you. What are other stories of how you have found talent in unusual places throughout your time with if management and then Montag group. I think another good story would be Dave Revson. I was um, living in New York city at the beginning of my, of my career. I still live. And I, I was friendly with this woman who at the time was dating a guy named Steve Levy, who was a sportscaster early on with CBS, WCBS locally in New York. And is it Steve Levy is his name and everybody knows him. And I got to know Steve a little bit and somehow Dave Revson sent a tape to Steve Levy. I don't know how he knew him. And Steve sent it to his agent at the time, a guy named Steve Lefkowitz, who's no longer with us, sadly. And Steve wasn't interested. Steve, Steve Lefkowitz wasn't. And somehow Steve Levy said, you know, my girlfriend has this friend who is starting an agency. His name is Steve Hers. And next thing you know, Dave sends me a reel. And he's been my client for over 25 years also, or I guess about 25 years now. So you mentioned doing the research and, you know, learning a little bit about people when you can. And I did that on you. And besides finding out that you uh, root for the second best football team from the 1997 year. Um, I also found <laughs> out that I'm from Nebraska. I had to shoot that, throw that in there. But I figured. <laughs> you have a philosophy called Broadcaster 2.0, and it's a concept. And it's, if I understand it, the way that you look at uh, talent going forward in this industry. What does that mean? Well, I, I didn't invent Broadcaster 2.0. I, I, I don't know. It, I, I give credit to Kevin Belby, although it may be somebody else. Well, he's Kevin's the one who told about. me about it. So, yeah. So I think he coined the term. I think we we may have collaborated on on the idea. Although I, I do give him credit. I, I think it's just this idea that you know, back in the day, if you wanted to be a broadcaster, when I was first starting out, you could be an anchor, you could be a reporter, you could be a play by play guy, and, and that was fine. But I think the days of the down the middle host. Are, 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 if not over, they're, 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 they're heading towards extinction. And so Broadcaster 2.0 is, you know, this combination of opinion and viewpoint and personality and not being just able to do one job. It's somebody who can host a podcast, who can do short form video, who can do an Instagram live, who can post content, who can cultivate an audience, who can also obviously host a show. And I think the, the, this incarnation of broadcaster that's coming, you know, early in their twenties. Now that the kids that are coming out of school, I do think a lot of them can do that. You have to be able to shoot, you have to be able to edit and look, especially now in this time of the pandemic, you're seeing the value of that. I mean, I represent a guy that you may, may know his name is Roger Bennett. He is uh, one half of the team of men in blazers and he is broadcaster 2.0. I mean, this guy does it all. He, he, he creates his own content. He's, he's producing shows right now out of his bedroom with, with major, major personalities. 
and he's he's doing everything. He's he's interviewing, he's editing, he's 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 posting podcasts. It's 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 crazy. So that's broadcaster 2.0. It's it's that that versatility. The if your audience is old enough to remember this guy, but the the Jose Okendo approach of uh, of broadcasting. The guy could play every position. How do you think that affects the future of play-by-play jobs specifically? I don't know. It's a great question. I, I, I don't think that it does. I think that uh, play-by-play is is, 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 is is a bit of a separate entity, I think, outside of the four walls of Broadcaster 2.0. But I think that the guy who only can do play-by-play is probably not going to have the same career arc today that he might've had 30 years ago. I think to get to the point of coming up in the business, you have to be able to do more than one thing. And there are exceptions. There are exceptions. There are people that are just really gifted at play by play who I think will make it. But I think it's more along the lines of going back to a guy like Steve Levy, who's not actually a client who was able to make a transition to play, to play by play because he can do all those other things. And he has a great voice. So I think it's a lot of guys don't start off doing play by play. They, they, they kind of morph into it later in their career. Chris Fowler being a really good example of that. I want to ask just a couple of agency questions that mostly we talked about in episode 88 with Kevin Belby. So I don't want to just do an entire repeat of that episode, but I do think there's some value in different opinions. And so I'm just going to throw a couple of these out there since we have a little bit more time. Uh, what for uh, a sportscaster in listening to this podcast who thinks that they are a break away from, from making it and they just need an agent and that could solve all their problems, what would you say to them? I mean, I'll probably say something similar to what Kevin said. I don't recall specifically, but I, I think that, look, it's, it's, it's unlikely. I mean, it's, it's possible, but it's unlikely. I mean, even if you have a great agent, if you haven't really gotten, uh, um, you know, really to, to a level where you're on the scene, I mean, the best thing I think an agent can do for you is maybe get you rather on a play-by-play side – kind of some entry level things at some of these networks, but they're not going to, I don't think most agents are going to take you from relative obscurity to a major play by play job. It's, it's, it's very rare. In fact, I, I don't can't think of an example where it's happened, but so it's more of an evolutionary process. So when do you think the right time for someone to seek out representation is, it, you know, I, I answer almost every question with the same response. It, it depends. And I think it depends on the individual and it depends on the agent and the agency. If, if you're a young broadcaster and you are looking for an agent and you find an agent who is, is not going to be respected in the business and isn't going to help you get better at your craft, then I think you're better off not having an agent. But if you find somebody that is respected and can help you improve your craft, then maybe it's right time to have an agent when you're 22 or 32. It, it just really depends on, on where and if the agent really thinks they can help you and or they have the relationships to help you. I'm really interested in how you came up with the name of your agency, If Management, because I mean, I read the story. You, you found it from a Rudyard Kipling poem that I went and then kind of read, and it's kind of a inspiring piece of poetry. And what led you to read that and then make the connection to name your agency after it? Great question, Logan. You're the only one that's asked me that. Thank you. So I have a sister. I, I, I'm one of four kids. I have a younger sister. And she went on an outward bound trip when she was in high school. And she came back from the trip. And as part of their program – they got into this poem, If, by Rudyard Kipling, and she brought it back for me and said, I think you'd really like this poem. I think it would, it would, it would resonate with you, and it really did. And I don't know. That was probably – let's see. She's four years younger than me, and maybe I was – so, you know, that was 30 years – over 30 years ago. And I, I guess maybe 10 years later, 
when I started the company, I kind of always had it in my mind that I thought that would be a great name for a company because I thought it had uh, the ability to express a certain ideal about life that really I think is very – it has a lot of good values in that poem. And one of them actually hangs over Wimbledon. There's a stanza that says, if you can meet with triumph or disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And, and that really spoke to me and obviously speaks to a lot of people because, like I said, it hangs over Wimbledon. And I think those are kind of words to live by in terms of your life and not being too tied up in sometimes being too tied up in the end result and not enough in the effort and the process that goes into it. And that's, you know, it boils down to, in a nutshell, a lot of the advice I've tried to give to my clients over the years and to my colleagues that, yes, results are very important. But if you take care of the process, almost always the good results will follow. Almost always. I emailed Dan Schulman, who, as you mentioned, has been on this podcast before, to said, what should I ask Steve about? And the thing that he brought up was that you are like the real-life hitch that you have set up double-digit couples on blind dates that have gone on to get married. Uh, what oh is it God. about he your ability to be the real-life hitch? Huh, that's funny. I, I You know, I, I guess, listen, I, I have a lot of weaknesses in life, trust me, and I'm not just saying that to be humble. I, I have a lot of weaknesses, and... I think the one strength I have more than anything else is an ability to really read and understand people. And that's something I've really tried to develop and enhance over my life. And when you sort of see that in one context in terms of helping someone become a better broadcaster or a better agent or a better anything in terms of your career, you can't help but see things in other people that maybe other people aren't seeing. And so if I see a certain quality and a certain aspect of someone's personality over here, and then I see someone else of the opposite sex who has certain qualities that I think are very compatible with another person, I'm going to say, hey, wait a minute, let's put this person with that person and see what happens. And crazy enough, I just started doing this, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, lo and behold, people started really hitting it off. And I've never done this as a business. It was just more, hey, this is a nice thing to do. And, you know, I actually set up Bill Pito, who was at ESPN for many years with his wife. And I set up my doctor up and one of my best friends from high school and many other people. And I don't know, it's just, I think it's a nice thing to do. And then ironically enough, I met my wife through one of the people who I set up and it came full circle and we've been married 15 years. So that's how we met. You say that you have many weaknesses as a person, but one of those is not ping pong ability because oh, I was told that you are high you on you the really rankings. Your homework. I am very impressed. You're very high on the rankings you, of the Montag group ping pong uh, list. Where are you at and who is your competition at work? All right. You get best question asked of any podcast host so far. <laughs> I love this. Um, so I think I'm rated third, fourth or fifth. I'm somewhere in the top five, but you know, it's interesting. Andrew Montag, who is uh, Sandy's son, who joined our company about a year ago, he, he and Jeff Feldman, my longtime colleague from the IF management side, those guys are probably one and one A. And a guy named Michael Schenker, who is a uh, consultant with the, he runs our consulting division. Those guys are, are the, uh, the three, the three big, big gorillas. And then there's me and probably a few others. But what they don't know, what they don't know, Logan, is that that is only as of March 11th. But since then, I've been quarantined in a house on Long Island with a ping pong table and staying with another family where the husband is a fantastic player. We've been getting into some epic matches. And I'm predicting, I'm making a bold prediction here that when we get back to New York, I'm going to be number one. All right. That's, you heard it here first. Watch it, Montag Group. He's like the Michael Jordan from The Last Dance when, uh, Somebody found out that when he found out that somebody was better at ping pong for him, that he bought his table and just kept playing. <laughs> exactly um, what happened. Okay, last just kind of weird, fun question. Um, what did you do when you heard a character with your name on the highest rated episode of Friends? 
Wow, you have really dug deep here. Did you did you talk to my wife before this podcast? I'm really I did amazed not. By, I did not. You did not. Wow, I'm, I'm impressed. Um, all right, so one of my best friends from high school is a guy named Michael Borkow, and he ended up becoming the head writer of Friends, and he surprised me and another friend of ours from high school, and he he wrote us into the Super Bowl 1996 episode where I became. Uh, a character involved with Julia Roberts and we were Matthew Perry and Julia Roberts. And we, we, we went to, we went to elementary school with them. So Steve hers was a guy that we need anything off the floor for money in the third grade, which, which by the way, isn't true, but now everyone thinks it's true because this guy wrote it into a, the highest rated friends episode of all time. So fame came at a very steep price for me with that, with that, uh, with that mention. I guess we'll finish things up, and before I let you go, um, I should let you promote your book. So where does somebody find it? Where could somebody find you on social media, etc.? Oh, yeah, I forgot. I wrote a book. Um, so, yeah, there's really just one place that I think is most convenient is just go to this website that we put up. It's called www.stevenherz.com and Stephen, S-T-E-V-N-H-E-R-Z.com, and you can get all the social media follows there. And, you know, one other thing, Logan, that I really advise your audience, I mean, obviously, please buy the book if you like what you heard today. And, and, and if not, then at least I think download the free authority prep guide that we put out. It's an eight page guide. And if you just put your email in and join our mailing list, you get the free guide. And there's also cheat sheets that come along on emails after that for a few days on how to get a cheat sheet with authority, warmth and energy. And I really believe it will help a lot of people. And that's what motivated me to write the book. So that's it. No other plug needed. I appreciate well, again, it. Again, I found it extremely helpful. I think that it made me think about a lot of things that maybe I had been thinking about, but in a different angle. And I highly recommend checking out the book. Uh, again, thank you to Steve Hers, the president of IF Management, part of the Montag Group. Uh, thanks for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks, Logan. Have a great day. Really appreciate the time. Great prep by you. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. My favorite is Twitter. That's radio underscore Logan. I'm also on Instagram at saythedamnscore. Easy enough to remember. Also, anytime you want to give an Apple podcast review, Send me an email. Any kind of honest feedback that helps make the show better is always greatly appreciated. Lastly, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories and taking the time to come on this show. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.